This week on the Rail Splitter, it's Steampunk Lincoln with Jacopo Della Quercia. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition. To each other. And. Party on, dudes! All right, welcome to the Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln podcast. I am co host Jeremy, along with Nick. Yeah, this is me. Uh, for those of you, uh, we're. Just got out of a tornado warning, so that's how dedicated we are. And we are sitting by the biggest window in the house, too, as we do this. So so not only are we ambitious podcasters, we're trying to be as courageous as possible. So uh, we are coming at you live from the land of Lincoln as evidence from our tornado warning. Uh, our episode today, we are so excited to have a special guest with us. Uh, he writes under the name Jacopo Della Quercia. His given name is Giacomo. Uh, he is the writer of the book we mentioned last week, The Great Abraham Lincoln Pocket Watch Conspiracy. He's written for BBC America, Business Insider, CNN, HuffPost, The New York Observers, Ripley's, believe it or not, a lot of stuff for Slate, and he's been featured in academia for publications from BYU, George Mason University, Princeton University, all kinds of accolades, and a super, super fun person to read. Mr. Della Quercia, how are you? How are you doing, Jeremy? Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and for tweeting at us and kind of engaging with the Abraham Lincoln uh, Rail Splitter podcast community. Uh, we're, we are happy to have you on the show. Uh, thank you so much for reading my book and for, for mentioning your podcast. It's the reason why I, I read that book in two days. And if you saw what I look like, you'll know that's quite an achievement for me. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, listen, stay on the line. I just got to tell my girlfriend something. I read the book in two days. I specifically, <laughs> I, she just said the same. I specifically read that book so that people could read it in a binge in like one or two days. And the reason why I wrote it that way is so that people would want to read it again the moment they finished it. Wow. Wow. Did it, did it work, Nick? It, it did work. I, I love the book. It, it was uh, uh, great. I actually, uh, when Jeremy mentioned it last week, I had not read it up to that point. And then, so I, I got it and then I started reading it. And then I, I just fell in love with it, the way you um, um, just tied in, you know, the historical elements to the fictional story I thought was great. Um, you know, how did you get going on it? Like, how did you decide to go that route with it? Was it more that you wanted these characters in it or did you choose an event and then go with it? Well, there's, there's many different angles to it. Um, I mean, really... It's almost like, you know, this book, when you spend like a year working on it, and in my case, I spent half a year just planning what the book was going to be. Like, I, like pretty much when I signed my contract for the book, which I proposed to them as, a, you know, a steampunk-esque, more specifically a Jules Verne-esque novel going through American history using real history as sort of the narrative that the story would be following. The main thing that I was trying to say is that this book is meant to serve as a learning tool. It's supposed to familiarize readers and audiences of all backgrounds with these characters so that when they finish the book, they want to learn more about it. So the way that it worked is I pretty much proposed that to um, my agent. She found St. Martin's Press. They were interested in it, and they gave me a year to write it. I spent half of that year just researching everything I could from the time period 
just everything I could about President Taft, reached out to the, the Taft National Historical Society, all these different scholars, museums, like everyone. I just wanted to familiarize myself so much with this world, which in truth, I didn't know much about. I picked this period between Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson because I truly didn't know much about this period. So I thought readers might know, I mean, I might be able to surprise readers with this material because I might be surprising myself as well. But more specifically, when it comes to how did I settle upon this, uh, like how the story came about, what it really comes down to is for this book in particular, I needed to find sort of a crossroads in history. I needed to find this one period in history where A, a lot of very interesting things were happening. B, it would be a time period felicitous for a sort of steampunk-esque story. And lastly, it would have to be a time period that had some relevance to Abraham Lincoln. Because in the very beginning, all I came up with was the title. I liked the title. I thought it sounded cool. No, because Taft is the main character, and Taft's not in the title. I'm telling you right now, I did not know Taft was going to be in the book. But I did my research, and I found out that during this time period between 1910 and 1912, there was this real-life craze over Halley's Comet ending all life on Earth. There was, of course, the centennial anniversary for Abraham Lincoln. There was the end of, um, what was it? There was the end of Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, and there was the beginning of the Taft presidency. And there was, of course, this uh, crisis within the Republican Party over Alaska. It was called the Bollinger Affair. And then lastly, there was the sinking of the Titanic. So I was able to get all these incredible real aspects of history, these real people, these real, these real figures. And I just said, well, that's going to be my time period. So how can I tie Abraham Lincoln in there? He's dead. Robert Todd Lincoln was my person, did all the research that I could, and I was able to find a way to link Abraham Lincoln's assassination to the sinking of the Titanic. And I just want to tell you something right now. The first historian that I sat down with for research on this book. He's a wonderful guy named Mark Wortman. He's an excellent Civil War historian as well. He wrote the best book I've ever read on General Sherman. It's called The Bonfire, The Siege and Burning of Atlanta. And he invited me to New Haven because, uh, as you know, uh, Yale University is featured very heavily in that book. He was my Yale University expert. We sat down at New Haven Pizza, great place for pizza, and he said, before we get started, he just said, um, how the hell... He's like, I read your email. What the hell does Lincoln's assassination have to do with the sinking of the Titanic? And about a half an hour later, he said, well, I'm exaggerating. More than 10 minutes later. Once I was done explaining, in one continuous sentence, a 10-minute long sentence like this one, once I was done explaining the story, he just said, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> and then I told him, oh, by the way, and it happened on the same day. Oh, yeah. That's... Uh... Go ahead, Nick. <laughs> yeah, for our listeners who haven't read the book, I, you do it. You definitely do it, and it kept me engaged the whole time, and you did a great job with it. Um, the thing I was thinking I wanted to ask you is, so did you choose Taft just strictly because of the time period? He just kind of fell in right when all those events were happening then? Well, I mean, when it came to Taft, like, of course, I could have had anybody in the world you know, be the main character in the story. Mm -hmm. But as I was doing my research, I mean, I liked everyone – I just thought that Taft was famous for getting stuck in the White House bathtub. <laughs> I, now, listen, I did more research. I found out that never happened. That story didn't exist until after he was president. So, I mean, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. I have a book over here, Oxford University Press, that says 
newspapers howled with laughter when President Taft got stuck in the bathtub. It never happened. University presses believed this for decades. So I was like, well, what the hell did he do? If he didn't, if he didn't get stuck in the bathtub, then what were his achievements? Mm-hmm. And I did know that um, it, I really came to Taft through Robert Todd Lincoln, because Robert Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's eldest son, was just this fascinating character. He, he's this Hamlet from American history. He could have been president numerous times, almost every single time he turned uh, the Republican Party down. There's only one time where he considered entering the presidency. That was when Chester A. Arthur uh, was president. What happened is the Republicans, they were, um, I believe Chester A. Arthur, he was a native of uh, New York, mm-hmm. and um, Robert Todd Lincoln was very close with him. So he told the Republicans, who every four years they asked Robert Todd Lincoln, do you want to be president? And Robert Todd Lincoln this one time said, if Chester A. Arthur is renominated, that he will accept the nomination for vice presidency. But Chester A. Arthur was not renominated, and that was that. That was the end of Robert Todd Lincoln's at least uh, deliberate presidential aspirations. But with that said, he was a little bit like a Ted Kennedy. He was like this lion in the party that lived a very long life. He was, I believe he was, I could be wrong, correct me, I believe he was the last survivor of not only Lincoln's deathbed, I believe he was the last survivor of the signing of the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. So he was this person himself at Crossroads of History, and he was just so respected within the Republican Party. And I was able to find out that in 1912, during President Taft's re-election, Taft sought and received Robert Todd Lincoln's support for the Republican nomination over Teddy Roosevelt and the subsequent Bull Moose candidacy. So it was that connection, the fact that Robert Tom Lincoln was close to Taft, and really the fact that Robert Tom Lincoln was just this powerful force and really just the closest living link they had to Abraham Lincoln within the Republican Party, it really made me believe that if I'm writing the story, no matter who is going to be president, Robert Tom Lincoln is going to be a major force, uh, just a codicil. Robert Tom Lincoln will be a major force as long as the president is a Republican. Yeah, and that was that was one thing that I enjoyed most about the book. And and, and when I described the book, and when I described it on the show last week, the, the word I used most often was fun, and I almost felt like I was being redundant using the word fun. Uh, but what mm-hmm. I liked, what I liked most about the specifically the Robert Todd Lincoln piece, you know, you're talking about a steampunk novel. There's you know zeppelins and automatons and you know all kinds of cool stuff. But I, I just want to say they're all scientifically correct. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of like the 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 fun part about it like but when i'm reading it like robert todd lincoln is not this like super ambitious son who's trying to get out of the shadow out of his father's shadow and you know like had that been the case i'd be like well this book isn't you know this isn't right because i'm willing to go along with the the flying white house told that's awesome but if but the (laughs) character of robert todd lincoln to me felt true you know because that's not how he was he was humble he was respected he was kind of mm-hmm. kind of a reluctant uh, player, yet an extremely important one. So that's where I kind of get into the the the, uh, the alternative history as narrative, or the kind of steampunk, or whatever you want to call it. So can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about your experience with using alternative histories, or science fiction, or historic fiction, however you want to term the genres, to actually teach real history? Oh, sure. Definitely. Well, for one, there is some speculative history is used within academia. There's um, there's an excellent series of books called What If, the What Ifs of History. I believe uh, 
Robert Lowey or Robert Cowley. Uh, anyway, it's a collection of essays that uh, cover turning points in history. What would have happened if you know if if the Battle of Hastings turned out differently? What would have happened if the Allies failed at D-Day? What would have happened if the Americans lost the revolution? And it's not just you know one crazy guy like sitting on his toilet pontificating all this stuff. They got essays from all the heavyweights you can think of. Stephen Ambrose wrote an essay on um, D-Day being a failure. I believe uh, David McCulloch, he wrote an essay on uh, the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, which was sort of the Dunkirk evacuation of the American Revolution. And really, I mean, when it comes to alternate history versus speculative history, speculative history is useful because when it comes to turning points in history, like for Civil War history, the finding of uh, that missing uh, the lost plan wrapped around those three cigars right before the Battle of Antietam. Mm -hmm. Like, we do know what was going to happen if those cigars had not been found. If they had not been found, we know that Robert E. Lee would have, you know, marched his army deeper in Pennsylvania, would have probably taken or at the very least threatened Harrisburg, and then possibly... I've heard that they would have moved east to Philadelphia. I'm not so convinced, but I, I haven't seen the paper trail for that yet. Can't say that's definite. But the point is, we are able to sort of get this evidence that we have and figure out realistically what would have happened. So, like, what would have happened if Lincoln was not assassinated? Well, most likely we know he would have woken up the next day. And then it's like from there, we have an idea of what the first day of Abraham Lincoln alternate history would have been like, so on and so on. So you can give, you know, not only students and academics, you can also convey very, what you can do is you can sort of illustrate how delicate history is, how something very small, something very modest can completely upend history as we know it. And I'll give you one example. Right before the Battle of Trenton, during the American Revolution, specifically the crossing of the Delaware River, there was a British officer who was engaged, and I've heard two different accounts of this. One account was a poker game, the other was a chess game. I think it was a poker game, specifically. And uh, he was actually given a letter from a British sympathizer who had learned that General Washington and the Continental Army was going to be crossing the Delaware River that evening, right before Christmas. And supposedly, uh, this letter was delivered to him. And I've uh, read the transcript of the letter. It's pretty specific. It's saying that they're crossing the Delaware, going to attack the Hessians, prepare yourselves. And supposedly, this officer just, he was engaged in a, like I said, he was, let's just say he was playing Texas Hold'em. He was engaged in a very intense game of Texas Hold'em. He pocketed the letter. He was found dead the next day, and the letter was in his pocket unopened. Wow. Yeah, and that's and I agree. And, and for just we're both educators. Um, mm -hmm. And when we think about how to get young people engaged in history, you know, mm -hmm. I think kind of more traditional approaches to teaching history would not suggest that speculative history is going to be beneficial, right? It's you know, you teach a sequence mm -hmm. of events and and causes and effects and, and the like. But if you were to like investigate what if Abraham Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, what would his approach mm -hmm. to reconstruction have been? You can't not understand radical republicanism or Andrew Johnson or Lincoln's mm -hmm. Lincoln's ideals and beliefs any better way, I don't think, than thinking like, well, I don't know, what would he have done? What mistakes would he well, have made? I, well, actually, I can tell you that this entire book from the very beginning, and I do mention this in my acknowledgments, this began with a homework assignment that I got when I was a freshman in college. My, the chairman of my history department, Dr. Don Housley, uh, he gave us an assignment. And once a week, 
he would give us a one-page essay assignment where we had to write an essay that was covering alternate history, where he said, what do you believe would have happened if America had never been, uh, if slavery had never existed in America? Specifically, if during the signing, if, you know, if the debate of the Second Continental Congress, what if Thomas Jefferson had his way? What if they included that one passage of the Declaration that eradicated slavery? And I actually asked if I could write my essay in the form of creative fiction. And my professor said, sure, do it. And I wrote it as Abraham Lincoln watching our American cousin on the last few minutes of his life, reflecting in his mind what would have happened if Thomas Jefferson had won out and if essentially America was founded as a free country. And that is the, uh, when it comes to the paper trail for my book, that is the earliest writing I did that eventually found its way into the final novel. And later on, once I graduated, I spoke to that professor about that. And he was a very old man. He, was, you know, he had just retired. And I was thanking him for giving that assignment. And I said, why did you do that? I said, why were you encouraging us week after week after week to, you know, write essays about what would have happened if Robert E. Lee won at Gettysburg? Like, what if, um, you know, what if the Petersburg, uh, what was it? If the, the Battle of the Crater had been a success, what if, uh, I loved it. What if Pearl Harbor turned out to be an even worse disaster? Mm-hmm. And he said that he found that his students were not only more engaged, he found that they did better research and produced better work if they were enjoying what they were doing. Well, so, I, I mean, he won out. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, I'm a... Uh... Unlike Jeremy, he's an administrator. I'm actually doing this with my boss. So <laughs> I was a teacher. For, I was a teacher for quite some time. He he now evaluates <laughs> me. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I think what you're getting at is, and what you're saying, and what I keep thinking as you were talking is, um, that the great thing about this to do alternate history, you have to have the research component to do it and to do it right. And then when you start <laughs> doing these alternate history projects, it's fun. And then and that's why oh, yeah. it's so important for the classroom is the kids have a blast doing this type of stuff because it allows them to be creative. There's nobody putting any restrictions on them, and, and then that's really the power to this stuff. And I, I think like a book like yours, um, you know, I'm definitely going to recommend it to the students, and I think it would be a great book for a, young, a younger person who's really interested in history to pick up and to read and to see that history is fun because you can have these alter. It's the Monday morning quarterbacking of history is what it is, mm-hmm. and that's why it's so mm-hmm. interesting and so engaging. Well, thank you so much. And when it came to, um, like, one thing I just want to mention when it comes to the fun that you can have with this, one of my first cracked articles, which was about, um, uh, what was it? It was, it was about myths of World War II. And one of the myths was if Hitler had done blank, the Nazis would have won the war. That was one of the myths. How, like, you know, if Hitler had, what was it? It was like if Hitler did not sleep in during the D-Day invasion, he would have won the war. If Hitler had done this differently, you know, I'm sorry, he would have not have lost the war, I meant to say. But one of them in particular is, you know, we say that a lot when it comes to Russia. You know, if Hitler, specifically, I needed to debunk the argument if Hitler had taken Moscow or if he invaded earlier in the year, you know, if he had done that, the Nazis would have won the war. Well, when it came to that, I pretty much got a very close friend of mine, and I also got a professor that we both had who was um, chair of our history department, and he was also um, specifically, he focused on interwar German history. I pretty much said, listen, can we find a way to conquer Moscow in 1941? 
So for about a month, we were sharing all this information with each other. We were looking at all these old maps. We were following German movements. And for the light of us, we could not take Moscow. There was always one thing we weren't expecting. Like if, uh, you know, if the Germans had invaded earlier, like, like they wanted to, three weeks earlier, they would have been stuck in mud instead of Russian snow. If they had, uh, what was it? If they had uh, penetrated deeper into Russian territory, then their supply lines would have been even more overexposed, one thing after another. And we were essentially learning so much about World War II history, and specifically the very intricate details of Operation Barbarossa, through trying to change history. And it was a great education. And furthermore, when it comes to students and the education that they can get from alternate history, I mean, it's very interesting. You, like, I recently finished a class for some JROTC cadets at Albany High School, and we were covering Sun Tzu's Yard of War. And I would show them, you know, maps of Civil War battles, uh, the campaigns and what was it? I showed them the Peninsula campaign. I showed them Gettysburg. And I was asking them to essentially be a better general. I said, how could you have been general than, I mean, how could you have been a better general than McClellan? How could you have been better than Robert E. Lee? What would you have done in these situations? And in those situations, it's empowering. And not only that, you're also respecting the intelligence of your students because you're giving them the, op the opportunity to step into the shoes of Alexander the Great or Hannibal, and you want to hear what their thoughts are. But one thing, I just want to throw this out there in case any of you are interested. When it comes to using the pocket watch conspiracy in the classroom, because several students and several teachers have told me they have used it in class, and I love every anecdote I've ever heard. One very interesting homework assignment that I've heard and that I've subsequently recommended is ask students to read the book and to pick one character in the book and just write an essay on which part of the story is true and is not true because every single named person in that book was a real person. All the cooks working in the white house, all the secret service agents, like even, Oh my God, I went on Google books to find out which U S marshal was working in Connecticut. And in that district of Connecticut in the new Haven district of Connecticut during the time of this major sequence I had that takes place at Yale university there, because as I was writing the book, Every time I had to make up a character or I had to invent one, I wasn't interested in my imagination. I just went on Google Books and found out who actually would have been working there. And thus, I was able to find a real person with decades of history, sometimes writing of their own, backstories, tombstones, real history behind it. And, I mean, I loved it. It was an education for me, and it's an education for anybody who's reading the book, especially readers in the modern century, that whenever they see something that interests them, they just go online, punch it into a search engine, and learn whatever they can about it. I like it. You heard that, uh, Rail Splitter listeners. That's a homework assignment, <laughs> and then we'll give you 15 Rail Splitter points for everybody who emails us the assignment. No, but that's mm -hmm. a great Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you going to grade them, though, for us? <laughs> uh, me? Yeah. Uh, a, listen, I really mean this. I truly, truly mean this. If, if you really feel like it, if, like, if you have, like, if you have 20 or 40 homework assignments and you just, if you just want to have fun, email me one or two of them and I will grade them. Awesome. Awesome. I like that no. one or two of them. <laughs> that was awesome. No, I, that is a great idea. <laughs> and then I like everything you're saying from me who's in the classroom. Um, and I know when Boyce was there, uh, Jeremy, yeah. Jeremy sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, you're speaking right to it. I mean, putting the kids in those positions to make those decisions and to think back on it, just because something happened doesn't necessarily mean it was the right or wrong thing that happened. 
let's put you in mm-hmm. those shoes and how would you have responded to that? And then it leads to great discussions and debate amongst the students. So um, I agree with mm-hmm. you hundred percent. No, thank you so much. And by the way, like one thing I just wanted to say that like, I really mean that I would want to grade one of those essays because I want to see which character they would pick. I mean, there's like over a hundred named people in that book. I would love to read an essay. If the one essay that the student wanted to write about was, what was Lily Wallace, the White House cow, during the Taft years? Yeah. There's yeah. a real history about that. Someone could get their PhD on that cow. I, I kid you not. Yeah, and yet the book feels so imaginative. Like, you didn't make up one person in that book, yet I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so creative. Like, how, how does this happen? You know, I could have never come up with this. And then the whole time it's, it's right in front, you know, anybody, you know, in essence could have if they had the, you know, the, the vision that you did, I guess. Obviously, the weaving it all together was hugely creative, and, and I commend you for that. Um, well, so, thank you. But I got to tell you, though, I got to tell you, though, it was creepy, though, at times, because there were plenty of parts of the book that I made up plot-wise that I later found out really happened. I call that accidentally predicting the past. <laughs> and there was a lot, and specifically when it came to, when it came to the Guggenheims and J.P. Morgan uh, working with King Leopold II, I mean, I made that up when I was plotting the story, and then I had to be doing my, I had to do my research like months later. I'm like, all right, how the hell am I going to connect these completely unrelated people together? And later found out that they did actually commiserate a little bit. I was like, holy crap! You know, I, I have a theory. That. I have a theory on that. I think that people are better, like, because you, you, the more you learn about that. Because I remember what I had a similar experience when I was talking with somebody who, who you know, thought I knew a lot about Lincoln and asked. If he was an animal, if he was an animal lover, I'm like, well, he had a huge heart. He was a great father. I'm like, I, he, I'm sure he was, and I had no idea. And then I look it up, and of course, he was. You know, and, mm-hmm. and there's a very interesting story about him killing an animal and you know coming to terms with it. And you know, there's a whole kind of arc there that's interesting. But I think the more you know about history, the more you can kind of play that pretend game. And sometimes, you know, it turns out like your knowledge actually led you to that reverse prediction mm-hmm. in, in a fun way. And not only that, one of the empowering things about history is history is finite. They have only so much writing. We only have so many artifacts. And it's interesting, when it came to Stanley Kubrick, before he would write many of his scripts, um, specifically, I'm thinking about an anecdote I've heard when he wrote Dr. Strangelove. He would just read every single book he could find on the subject until he was no longer able to learn anything new. And when you come to that point, I mean, naturally, I mean, I'm willing to play ignorant. I mean, I'm still learning things in history that I'm like, oh, I wish I'd put that in the pocket watch book. But nevertheless, there does come a point, though, where you learn enough about not only history, but figures from history, like Taft Lincoln, that you can start thinking on their behalf. You can start improvising. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like, um, uh, like Hal Holbrook when it came to his performances as Mark Twain. Once you've dedicated enough of your life to researching one person or one event or numerous events, once you understand them well enough, you figure out how they tick. And as a result, mixing these characters together, like, say, in the book, uh, when it comes to mixing Robert Todd Lincoln, President Taft, um, Wilkie, Teddy Roosevelt, Major Butt, all these people, I researched them for so long that I almost viewed them as, like, chemicals in a chemistry set. I knew these chemicals down to their bases. And as a result, when I reacted them, I, whenever I interacted them with each other, I knew what the re- reaction would be like. Some of them would be inert. Others would be explosive. And that's the kind of thing that just made, when it came to writing, dialogue was the easiest thing in that book because I knew all the components. I knew all these different characters. 
And like I said, it was just like a, a chemistry experiment. I would just throw them at each other and just take dictations of the explosions and the fireworks that would follow. Wow, that is that's amazing. I, you know, I've never heard someone. You know, and and I'm just so delighted to have you as a writer and to talk about getting to know characters. And it's so fun because they're they're real people who you're creating a narrative about, and you've gotten to know them so well. So that's that's outstanding. If we could just shift gears a little bit, real quick, I want to take a quick time out. Um, to make sure we got everything right. Can you, again, the, the General Sherman book and who wrote it, just so listeners can, I want to make sure that we get that right. Devin, I want to put that out there because he's an excellent writer and an excellent man. It's Mark Workman, spelled M-A-R-C. And the book is You said Workman? Workman, W-O-R-T-M-A-N. Yeah, Mark Workman. And his book is The Bonfire, The Siege and Burning of Atlanta. Okay. And it's about General Sherman. We one of our one of our favorite and most dedicated. No, we don't have favorites. They're all our favorite. One of our most dedicated and, and passionate listeners is a huge Sherman fan. So I'm going to make sure we get that in the show. And then the what ifs from history. I looked that up. That you were right. It is Robert Cowley who edited that. Um, mm-hmm. And there's some there's some heavyweights in that book. Uh, you have David McCullough writing about mm-hmm. 1776. James McPherson. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dalek. Caleb, yeah, Caleb Carr is in there as well. Yeah, Robert, author Robert, of, Robert Dalek, who wrote a, a great JFK biography called An Unfinished Life, wrote his his piece is called JFK Lives. So it looks mm-hmm. like uh, super fun stuff. So That's a great book for mm-hmm. educators, too, if there's other educators listening. Um, I know I've used part of that in the classroom before. Um, yeah, they also have uh, Jay Winnick. He wrote a fantastic essay there about, it was called Beyond the Wildest Dreams of John Wilkes Booth detailing how really just the entire 19th century could have been lost if just one more person on John Wilkes Booth's hit list had been killed that evening during the assassination. Right, yeah, Seward, Johnson. Um, I think it wasn't even Stanton mm-hmm. on the list. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, again, another great what if, if you understand kind of the, you know, the forces at play in, the, in that transition of power from Lincoln to Johnson. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do want to shift gears a little bit to get a kind of your historic perspective on the, you know, what drew me to, to the novel was Lincoln. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a Lacanophile or however you want to say it, you know, and, and the title, <laughs> I will be honest, the title, um, I don't know, I honestly can't remember how I came across it, but the title drew me in and I, and I bought it right away. Um, I kind of have a running theory that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm always, I'm always interested in the question, when did the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, become the party of our current president, or how did it get to, to that mm-hmm. point? And, and one of my big theses on that is that it, it happened in the Hayes-Tilden situation when we abandoned the Freedmen's Bureau and Reconstruction and those issues. However, mm-hmm. a good friend of ours is a big Teddy Roosevelt fan, and I look at the progressives as trust busters and, you know, friends, you know, so-called friends of the common man. I'm like, well, you know, I see some elements of Lincoln there. So maybe, mm-hmm. the, maybe the transition happened later. So I guess when you wrote the book, you've got very clear lines from Lincoln to the progressives and that progressive mm-hmm. movement. What are your thoughts on the common elements between Lincoln and the progressives? And how does, like, what importance does that have in the evolution of the Republican Party from our first Republican president to current ones? Well, first of all, Lincoln was never afraid of flip-flopping. If he saw something that was a better proposal or a better idea, he adapted it, and in his own words, 
he would wrap his arms around it so quickly that no one would even know that he supported the opposite a day before. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, there's a letter that he writes to Horace Greeley in anticipation for the uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, where like that's the you know where he says the famous line, "If I could, if what is it? If he could end the war by freeing all the slaves, mm-hmm. he would. If he could end the war by freeing some of them, he would do that. And if he could free some of them now and leave others and you know leave some of them in bondage, he would do that as well." Like, that's what everyone quotes, but they don't quote as the end, which is a masterpiece of flip-flopping on Lincoln's part, where he pretty much gives, like, this PhD thesis in just a few words about how if there is something that is going to be, like, a better proposal, he will just adopt it so swiftly and just, you know, like, make that his battle standard. And probably a great example of that is compare Lincoln's first inaugural to his second inaugural. Completely different. I mean, there's a professor over at there's a professor at Yale who, as a homework assignment, he asked students to use Lincoln's first inaugural to say, "Use all right, for one week, you have to write an essay explaining that Lincoln was a white supremacist, using the first inaugural as your only source." The next week, you had to write an essay saying that Abraham Lincoln was dedicated to the destruction of slavery, using the first inaugural as your only source. <laughs> And, I mean, that's how he was. And, I mean, when it came to, like, I mean, progressive ideology, liberal ideology, I mean, first of all, I mean, Abraham Lincoln's, like, his mindset was incredibly liberal. I mean, when it came to, like, you know, like, the, what was it, like, the Homestead Act, like, expansion into the West, the transcontinental railroad, scientific innovation. I mean, Abraham Lincoln presided over a technological boom, it's crazy. I wrote an essay for, uh, I wrote an article for Slate Magazine about how Lincoln essentially was like Doc Brown in the White House. He's the only president we ever had who was a patented inventor. Now, I, the I truth read that is, today, by the way. I just wanted to yeah, uh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, look, the USS Monitor was a steampunk super weapon. Look <laughs> at that thing. <laughs> you are absolutely right. That is a great observation. I'm t- yeah, it's crazy. It's hard to believe. And, and also, I mean, when it came to like the imagination that they had, like Lincoln, he was afraid of uh, the Virginia, the, the Confederate ironclad ship. He was afraid that thing was going to, you know, cruise up the Potomac and shell the White House. Now that's the kind of imagination Lincoln had. And they said that uh, what was it? Like when he inspected the Monitor, they said he knew all the ins and outs of it because he had done his research on it. And ultimately, when it comes to like the divide within the Republican Party over, you know, from 1865 to now. I mean, there's bumps in it. I mean, the, the parties are always changing. You know, they're always changing sides. It happens like every generation or so. Mm-hmm. But when it came to the differences between the Republican Party from Lincoln's time and say, let's just take baby steps when my story takes place, it really seemed that the Republican Party, in my opinion, had gone through a little bit of a political realignment similar to the electoral realignment that the nation went through during the election of William McKinley. And it seemed at that point that we were seeing a new generation of Republicans really solidifying control of the party. And not only that, we also saw with Teddy Roosevelt, who was a a very, he's the youngest president we ever had, I believe. Like when he came into the party and he just, you know, put his own stamp on that whole thing. I mean, he just steered the Republican Party wherever the hell he wanted to. All of a sudden, the Republicans were about environmentalism and conservationism. Uh, the Republican Party was now the party of trust busters. I mean, that's where one president was putting his own stamp on that. Mm-hmm. And can one president steer a party in a completely different direction? The answer is yes. We see it all the time. FDR did it. 
Um, Andrew Jackson did it. Well, I, I guess Andrew Jackson is different since he's sort of he's considered the first Democratic president. But when it comes to Trump, he's doing that as well. But I, there is one funny thing about this, though. The evolution of both parties. Uh, first of all, I take great pride in the fact I do not mention the Democratic Party once in the pocket watch conspiracy. I mm-hmm. mentioned the Prohibition Party, I think, twice. Mm-hmm. But I don't mention the Democrats. Why? Because the Democrats were terrible during Taft's time. Mm-hmm. It pisses me off so much. <laughs> now, when it comes to the Democrats, I mean, when it comes to the Democrats right now, listen, I'm going to be up front. I, I used to work for Obama. I worked for his campaign in 2008. Proudly, I still have a letter from him. When it comes, though, to this book, I, like, I actually say this whenever people accuse me of partisanship. The Pocket Watch Conspiracy was my first novel, and it has three Republican presidents in it. I actually think, no, it has four if you count uh, Warren G. Harding. He's briefly in there. Right. So, boom, four Republican presidents. But, um, yeah, I mean, what, I mean, I mean, this is what I keep in mind when I was writing this story. This story took place at a time when the coolest thing a person could be in America was a Republican. And America could still be like that. Mm-hmm. I really do mean that. I mean, at the end of the day, we're the people who determine the country that we have and the people that we elect. And in some cases, when we see people like Trump, Trump may not be so much what's wrong with America as a symbol or a symptom of what's wrong with America or with the party or so-and-so. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I really want people to just at least know their own history. If they're so proud of the party that they're a part of, if they're so blindly devoted to something that they really feel that their way is right, I just want them to consider that there was a time when the Republican Party was not only stronger and more efficient than it is right now, but there was a time when we had back-to-back Republican presidents have a military advisor whose name was Major Butt, and he was gay. <laughs> really? I didn't know. Yeah. I, I did not know the second half of that. That's that's, that's really. Oh, no, no, no. Good. Check it out. Go on Wikipedia. I mean, we we don't have hard. We don't have like hard proof about it because yeah. it looks like it really looks like uh, they just had sort of like a don't ask, don't tell policy at sure. the time period. But believe yeah. me, I read this. I read this guy's letters. Yeah. He he uh, he was living with um, a very famous painter at the time, Francis David Millet, I believe it is. And it looks like Millet was gay. He had a wife and children in Europe that he never visited. And uh, the two of them lived together in Washington, D.C. And uh, it is believed that the two of them were at least, uh, yeah, specifically, they are believed to have been uh, the only known gay couple that went down on the Titanic. Wow. Wow. All right. Man, you did research this stuff. Breaking news. So in in, in that, I mean, that's fascinating. You're, You're... I, I kind of you know like to engage in similar conversation. You know, I, I do feel like both liberals and you know present day Republicans want to claim Abraham Lincoln, and I get you know I'm similar to you. I'm literally wearing a vintage March 2008 Obama St. Patrick's Day T-shirt that has a shamrock for the apostrophe after O. That's true. <laughs> oh my God, you, the, the Obama. Yeah, I remember that. We, yep. we actually during during the campaign in 08, we still had a bunch of those uh, stickers. Because I guess, I don't know, for some reason, they really thought that Obama was going to be banking on that Irish Catholic vote. So <laughs> we had enough of those stickers to last us until November and beyond. See, you don't, you know, you don't need him in Chicago. He had it in Boston. Oh, oh yeah. Early, you know, so. But anyway, I bought <laughs> one proudly and wore it proudly, and I still bust it out after changing from work. So 
Um, but I, you know, I feel similarly where people come to me knowing that I'm, you know, obsessed with Lincoln to the point of having a podcast on him. Like, how do you, you know, how can you reconcile it? He's a Republican, and you know, then we get into, uh, you know, the Whigs were the Liberal Party, and the Republican Party grew up from the ashes of the Whigs, and he was certainly a liberal, and you know, blah blah blah. And then I always go to that, you know, when the Republicans really turn their back on Reconstruction and former slaves. But you make a good point that there are certain individuals. I think Teddy Roosevelt's a, a unique example where he did do whatever he wanted to do. And it maybe it may not have been the party who was liberal as much as he who was liberal. Well, listen, listen. Don't forget that the Republican Party came as pretty much as close as you possibly can to turning its back on Lincoln during the war. True. Chairman of the Republican Party, he wrote Lincoln and said, we're probably going to have to make a major change when it comes to emancipation, otherwise... You will lose re-election. And Lincoln himself, I mean, he saw the winds that were blowing against him politically until Sherman captured Atlanta. Uh, what was it? There, if I'm not mistaken, there was not even a Republican convention in 1864. There was a Union Party. Mm-hmm. Lincoln, they, yeah. yeah, Lincoln was yes. Lincoln was the Union Party candidate. Correct. Now, it's specifically, I believe it was specifically a bipartisan ticket. I think Lincoln was officially a Republican accepting the nomination, and Andrew Johnson was a Democrat accepting uh, the vice presidential nomination. Probably like accepting it while drunk off his butt. Yeah. I cannot believe it. <laughs> listen, I just want to say something. Uh, that one professor that I mentioned from Yale, uh, his name is uh, Professor Blight. He really, he has these fantastic, what is it, these fantastic uh, a YouTube series where he recorded all of his classes on the Civil War and the American experience. Check it out. Go on YouTube. Type in Professor Blight, Yale University, Civil War. It's like 27 episodes long. It's just a camera recording him in class, like an hour long each. In one of his last lectures, he really rips into Lincoln when it comes to Andrew Johnson. He said, make no mistake about it, it's because of Abraham Lincoln that we have Andrew Johnson. And he could have gone with Hannibal Hamlin. He could have gone with Seward. There's all these different people he could have picked for a vice president. Mm-hmm. He chose to, you know, he chose... The, the Union Party platform and really the bipartisan platform of trying to reach out to Southern Democrats and really Democrats as a whole. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a big mistake. Lincoln deserves, he does deserve a little bit of, well, what, what am I going to say? He deserves the Patrick Stewart baseball from Star Trek The Next Generation for that. Yeah, well, and I do think that his, I think from 1864 really until the end of his life, his eye was on reconciliation. I feel, you know, after Gettysburg and Vicksburg and certainly after Mm -hmm. Atlanta, like, you know, he knew the war was won and his eye turned toward reconstruction. So, you know, I think the decision was a Southerner. Now who are your your choices? Andrew Mm -hmm. Johnson and... No one. You know, so... nobody else. Right, so... Yeah, I agree. It was a bad decision. You know, it was a good decision that may have been, may should have may have been benefited by some reevaluation. But like, yes, we need a southerner. Well, not not that guy. And then maybe go with, I don't know, maybe Maryland or Kentucky's got somebody, or you know, something. Well, a little... it is worth it. Well, this is well, this is probably one of the greatest bosses with Abraham Lincoln's assassination. And uh, I mean, people are of many different opinions of this. I'm just offering my opinion. I truly believe that Lincoln became not only a better president, but I believe that publicly he became a morally better person as president. 
I mean, look at how much Lincoln changed between his first inaugural to his second. Or look how much he, yeah. he changed between 1861 and 1863. I mean, for, we have enough writing to understand what Abraham Lincoln was like privately, what his personal opinions of slavery were, what his personal opinions mm-hmm. of different races were. But ultimately, when it comes down to what Lincoln felt comfortable not only taking the public opinion on, but also the moral righteous opinion on, I mean, these are the kind of things where, you know, for four score, seven years, people were clamoring for someone to be able to say this publicly, never mind the president. Abraham Lincoln, when he was inaugurated, was not that person. Abraham Lincoln, a few years later, did become that person. He became, like, I believe one of the criticisms of Lincoln uh, during the, the 1860 election is I heard him described as he was a first-rate, second-rate man. Yeah. But as the years went on, even some of his harshest critics, especially during the last month of his life, really just realized this giant in front of them. And I really believe that while we do have just a few tea leaves when it comes to Reconstruction, we have that one address that he gave right before he was shot, the one that John Wilkes Booth actually heard on the White House lawn, that that was the beginning of Reconstruction. Lincoln might have taken a very different route one year later, two years later. I mean, he said malice towards none four years later after he was saying, you know, could it in compromise. So it really is just a great loss. We'll never know what Reconstruction would have been like under Lincoln, but I do think we should consider that there's a good chance Reconstruction would have looked very different than even Lincoln envisioned it. You know, talking about this growth and then used the term flip-flopper earlier, do you think we have that in our present-day society for a president to have growth like that? Because you think back, you know, John God, Kerry got please labeled, tell me we do. <laughs> I mean, John Kerry got labeled a flip-flopper, you know, when he was mm-hmm. running there, and that almost, you know, um, and things of that nature. Do we still have that in our society with, you know, the 24-7 news channels where they could just play that clip from you given that speech? Do you think something like the growth at Lincoln – went through, do you think that's still possible in our modern-day society? Well, I definitely think it's very possible and probably probable that people would do that. But uh, the question is, is it going to destroy their presidential or even just their political career? I mean, Donald Trump demonstrated that as long as you're friends with the correct Russian president, you can get elected (laughs) president of the United States, doesn't matter what you say. But, uh, yeah, it's very different than Teflon, uh, what is it, Uh, very different than Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. but how, you know, he was Teflon, nothing stuck to him. When it came to Donald Trump, it was basically uh, a different story. Nothing sticks to him as long as, you know, you're friends with Putin. But no, 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 moving along, when it comes to Lincoln, I mean, Jesus, I mean, even people, his own wife said he was unattractive. I mean, we have a we have a letter from Mary Todd where she was saying, like, you know, like uh, she's so proud of him. She said he's going to be president one day. I never would have married him otherwise, because, as you know, he's not pretty. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm no doubt that this very unfortunately faced man would have been butchered publicly for how he looked and, you know, how lanky he was. But I will say this. I have no doubt that Lincoln would have been a very successful politician today because he knew how to work media, no matter what century it was, no matter what decade it was. I mean, he would strategically would be writing letters to the editor throughout the country. 
actually probing ideas and testing them out, specifically when it came to the Emancipation Proclamation, I believe Lincoln would be doing no differently. If uh, he was appearing on, say, if he wanted to specifically appear on Fox News and then on CNN. And not only that, Lincoln was a master at making fun of himself. I mean, yeah. anything, that the, anything that the conservatives or, you know, or the liberals or whatever, anybody that his political opponents would be throwing at him regarding his face, regarding his policies, he would just find a way to turn it around and just have everybody laughing because that's how he was. I mean, we call him Honest Babe, even though I mean, you just read some of... I'm sorry, the guy was not. I mean, yeah. he was actually accused. He was like, there was one of my favorite uh, anecdotes about him. He was accused of being two-faced. And he said, if I was a man of two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> I love that line. That's a great one. And, and I do think... And that's something that I that I saw in Robert Todd Lincoln, in what I've read about him in your novel, that I think mm-hmm. he shares one of the things that he certainly shares with his father is a it's a unique sense of humility. I think mm-hmm. Abraham Lincoln was humble, yet very confident. He knew his abilities, and he knew he was humble enough to not take center stage when he didn't need to take center stage. He was humble enough to. Um, give credit where, you know, even if it should have been his. And I think that, but underneath that was a confidence where he knew what he was doing. And I think that a lot of, I think a lot of looking at his, you know, what we've been calling flip-flopping or his evolution, if we look at his, him as a man, as a life, right? I think it's a lot mm-hmm. easier to see who he was as opposed to, and I agree with you, he grew and he, and he evolved for sure. But I also think he and this is kind of one of the ongoing theses of this podcast that mm-hmm. he was not an abolitionist, he was not a human rights activist, he was a politician, and he knew mm-hmm. he knew that in order to abolish slavery, he would have had to take very delicate, intricate political steps over many years, and you know take take caution with everything he did, and he was humble enough not to say this is my policy. Enact it, or you won't be reelected. Or enact it, or you know whatever's going to happen. He knew how to play politics, and he was humble enough mm-hmm. where it wasn't about him. So, I, and, and I kind mm-hmm. of saw that in Robert Todd Lincoln too, where he's not about position, he's not about authority. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was a little probably even more humble. Mm-hmm. Which, but but I but I think that that's something, and and, and kind of going also back to our how do we learn history, analyzing mm-hmm. people, which feeds into speculative history because they're the characters of your story, analyzing mm-hmm. people. Who are people? How are they motivated? What are their characteristics? Really leads to some understanding of them. And I think that a lot of classically misunderstood historical figures like Malcolm X, like Abraham Lincoln, you know, several others, you don't look at their life as a whole. You don't look at their growth over time. You don't look at their motivations. You say, but he said this. And look at what he mm-hmm. said. And Nick made the point, too, the YouTube clip phenomenon that we have now. If we had that then, you could be like, look at this YouTube clip. He said this or he did that. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the luxury of saying, well, let's take a step back and look at the person's life as a whole. And I think that's, that can lead to some mm-hmm. deep learning from a historic standpoint. Well, yeah. I, I, mean, when it comes to, I mean, when it comes to humility, like Abraham Lincoln was not only a very, very humble person. And I, I really believe that it was the assassination and the fact that Robert Todd Lincoln inherited the family name and the family legacy 
that he was such a humble person. I agree with you, probably more humble than Abraham Lincoln was. I just want to say that Abraham Lincoln was very, very gifted at using humility and even essentially moral righteousness for political gain. And not, and not simply that he wanted, you know, power or anything like that, but the fact that he wanted what he believed was best for the country. And an excellent example of this is um, when it comes to his initial approach towards slavery, which was keep slavery where it was, Lincoln was a very intelligent person. He knew that if slavery was restricted exactly where it was, that was a death sentence to slavery. Slavery needed to expand. I mean, we had seen, uh, what was it, we saw Bleeding Kansas, we saw the Nat Turner insurrection beforehand, and then the big one, the meteor they called, was John Brown. Mm -hmm. John Brown was the worst case scenario for the Confederates, which was you know, essentially white abolitionists from the north coming down south and arming their slaves to murder them while they slept. That was high noon for what eventually became the Confederacy. And Abraham Lincoln knew that if he is vowing to keep things calm tonight for the war and to simply keep slavery where it was, the South would be forced to fire the first shot. Now, I don't think that Abraham Lincoln wanted that to happen. I, I mean, he made it very clear that he wanted to essentially use what the previous administration had, I believe the Crinidin Compromise, that's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. That, yeah, he, he, like, he was going to sign that into law, and I believe that. But essentially, the Confederates, they chose to fire first at Charleston. But it's like I said, when it comes to, to Lincoln, I mean, oh my God, I've taught the main background, the main interest of my research has always been Niccolo Machiavelli. So, you know, he delves into history as well as politics. I've always said in my classes on Machiavelli that the best Machiavellian president we've ever had, and I mean that as a compliment, the best Machiavellian we ever had was Abraham Lincoln. Because this was the guy who publicly was saying with malice towards none. Privately, this is the guy who overruled his own cabinet when it came to Sherman's march to the sea. And not only that, Sherman's march to the sea, I mean, the South has not even psychologically recovered from that. The idea that, you know, saying like, oh, Sherman, you know, like Sherman's the reason why people from Ohio will always get pulled over when they're driving through Georgia. Just the permanent stamp that this person put on there. Sherman, he simply wanted the South to fear him, but he did not have his army desecrating graves or raping women or destroying so many homes that we've heard about. Like, like I said, going back to that one author, Mark Wortman, he said that Sherman's army was actually one of the most well-organized militaries the United States has ever fielded, ever. His soldiers were so well-drilled, so, well uh, so well-supplied, and just so indebted to Sherman that almost every instance we hear of things that would be considered war crimes with Sherman soldiers simply were not true. And Lincoln was smart enough to use that, not simply as a means of ending war, but I believe Lincoln was willing to use that as a psychological weapon to, for lack of better terms, whip the South. Yeah. He makes it very clear in his second inaugural that, you know, one drop of blood is going to have to be shed for every drop of blood that was drawn by the lash. It's almost horrifying to hear a president giving such an apocalyptic prophecy to his nation, but he had just presided over the bloodiest conflict the nation had ever been through. 
And his job was to essentially narrate the story back to the country and then see how he could be the author with the rest of the country about what was to come. And he was level-headed about it, thank God. He was intelligent and emotionally sound about it, considering what he was going through privately. But make no mistake, whenever, whenever we think of Honest Abe, whenever we think of this very calm man, this very soft man, this very modest man, that is all true. But behind the scenes, the guy's mind is all clockwork. Right, yeah, and we kind of alluded to that a little bit last episode where we are talking about how he's known as mm-hmm. a man of peace and the malice toward non-president while presiding over the bloodiest four years in our history, probably, you know, hopefully of our entire history. So, yeah, and that's, and, and I think understanding the character of the man is is essential to us under, understanding the historic implication of him. So, um, mm-hmm. we've been talking for a while, so we, we may want to kind of transition a little bit. Um, Giacomo, if you're okay, if we talk a little bit of show news, and then we want to get back to... Um, one kind of fun question for you, and then you, <laughs> as as our guest on the show, have brought this week in Lincoln. So you gave us a little bit of time off from coming up with that. So we're really excited. Are you okay sticking around for about three or four minutes while we go over some show news? You got it. I'll be right here. I appreciate it. Okay, so Rail Splitters, we got two things coming up that are major. Uh, Nick and I are making a trip to Springfield uh, on a couple days after we recorded this episode. We got some really really cool interviews lined up with some folks down in Springfield, which we're really excited about. So pay attention for those episodes coming up. And this is major news for the Rail Splitter and Rail Splitter Nation. Uh, we are going to do a long project that's going to go from now until uh, December 31st, where we want to kind of unite the Rail Splitter community in a force for good. We are going to start a charity drive. And Nick and I talked quite a bit about this. And we wanted to pick a charity that fit Lincoln and in a unique way. And we're going to have some future episodes about how the loss of Lincoln's children impacted him as a person, impacted him psychologically, and how tragic it was to lose sons as, as children, both in and out, both before the White House and after the White House. So we've chosen a charity that donates to childhood cancer so that we could hopefully do our small part to prevent other families from going through what Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln and their family went through. So we have selected the Press On Fund, whose mission is explicitly to identify feasible and groundbreaking alternative therapies for childhood cancers um, with the goal of ridding childhood cancer from the planet. So we will send out much more information about this. Like I said, it's an ongoing charity project from now until December 31st. We're going to work together to come up with a goal for that charity drive. Um, and we will definitely have some drawings and some stuff to give away for people who donate. Um, so, uh, Giacomo, um, I am holding in my hand a copy of your novel, The American, the Abraham Lincoln Pocket Watch Conspiracy. If I send it to you, would you be willing to sign it and send it back? I'll send you the postage for both. Uh, so we can give this away for our charity drive. I just want to say, if there's any way I can be a part of your charity drive, I would be honored. All right, so... If every time you donate, you'll be put into a drawing, and the first prize that we'll give away at the end of the year will be a signed copy of the novel that we've been talking about today. And just so you know, I would encourage everyone out there to read the book. This episode, we probably should have said this at the top, it has been spoiler-free. So we talked a lot about the novel. We didn't reveal Which has been hard for me. 
Yeah. Very hard for me to keep it spoiler free, but I think I've done it. So yeah, like this, I in my I believe that this is the deepest conversation about any work that didn't have a spoiler. I don't think we didn't have any spoilers, right? I think it was pretty pretty. Clean. I think it was spoiler free. Okay, I, it was. Uh, well, there's there's only one there's only one thing that I would classify as a spoiler in that story. But when uh, it comes to the plot itself, I actually take pride. I saw the Wikipedia article. You guys mentioned on the Pocket Watch Conspiracy. I've which I hate, I hate referencing Wikipedia, so I apologize. We should have gone to your <laughs> website, but anyway, sorry. No, no, don't worry about it. I just love how that Wikipedia page is so enormous because there's really no shortcut way to explaining the plot. <laughs> and it's funny, I actually looked at the comments, the edit comments on Wikipedia, and the guy who wrote that, uh, the guy or girl, I don't know who it was, but whoever wrote it, they said, all right, I just wrote the plot. It's very, really, really easy way to summarize this. So. Mm-hmm. Um, our one fun question. I've been watching yeah. uh, or been reading on Cracked, and I know that you love to do your you know, top five, top six, top seven. So my question to you is, um, who are your top five presidents you'd want in a bar fight? In a bar fight? All right, that's an easy question. Okay, so Lincoln, Taft, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, I would want Barack Obama. I, I would wow. want Barack Obama in my corner. No, for real. Look, listen, I've seen him. He's, he's a very thick guy. He's got a very good reach. And uh, I think that, I think that you know what he would do? See, Obama is a lot funnier than people remember him as. I think he'd be pretty good at talking smack. I, I would want him as like a skirmisher like, in a situation like that. And uh, let's see, who else? Uh, all right, so what I say, Abraham Lincoln, without a doubt, strongest man in Illinois, the rail splitter. Uh, Taft, yeah, Yale heavyweight intramural wrestling champ, definitely would want him. Teddy, all right, Teddy Roosevelt, the Wolverine of the White House, I would want him. The guy was literally bulletproof. Uh, Barack Obama, and uh, you know what? I'm going to throw a curveball. Who would I want as my fifth person? I would want Harry Truman. Because I love Harry I, Truman. Harry Truman would break both bottles and dive into the fray before he even knew there was a fight. He's, I, like, I, he's like the Tasmanian devil. He would be the Incredible Hulk. He would be like you know the Joe Pesci in, in Goodfellas. He, I believe, would be the wild card. I think you're absolutely right. I think he's got like the chip on his shoulder, been bullied for a long time, like not going to take it anymore. Uh, <laughs> I'm done with this, and he'd get in there, and he'd just mess stuff up. No, like I'm talking like he would do like the kind of like move, like he would do the type of the brawl moves that would like make audiences groan if they saw it. Like probably the first person in the fight, he would probably kill him by shoving his glasses down his throat. <laughs> like that's his opening salvo. That's what I, all right, that's what I predict. Those those are great choices. I commend you for your for your selections. I like the the standards in there. You got some curveballs. That's that's the sign of a good list. I like it. The, Her- the Harry Truman makes the list. I mean that that is that is phenomenal. I agree. I agree. All right, and our highlight of the end of every episode is this week in Lincoln, and we're going to turn over to our new friend Giacomo for this week in Lincoln. All right, so this week, uh, this week in Lincoln, when it comes to pop culture references to Abraham Lincoln, I have two of them to share, if you'd be interested. The one Absolutely. that first comes to mind, excellent. The one that first comes to mind, the one that introduced me to Abraham Lincoln, I really do apologize if you've covered this before. 
But I just want to say the reason that really, actually not even the reason, the memory I have of Abraham Lincoln in my mind right now, the way that I imagine him as a writer, as a historian, as just an American, I will always remember Abraham Lincoln as he looked and sounded and was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes, that's in our theme song, his speech at San Dimas High School at the end. <laughs> no, I, I really mean it. I mean, I know that Lincoln, you know, had more of like a high squeaky voice than, or at the very least, a higher, fainter voice. And that, you know, he wasn't four score or seven years ago. The way that Lincoln is portrayed in that film, I really feel they captured his modesty. And I'm going to be completely honest. I think Lincoln, if he found himself in a time-traveling adventure, I believe he'd be cool as a cucumber the whole time. Like, I think, he, Lincoln, yeah, I, I think you're right. I would agree. I think that I, I, almost kind of fits into our alternate uh, history <laughs> thing almost. <laughs> you know, I actually, I do raise the possibility in the Pockwash conspiracy that there might be, if not time travel, something interdimensional going on. It's the conversation in the taxi cab that Wilkie and the Attorney General are having about the pocket watch, how the pocket watch should not exist. And not only that, how he says, is it just me or has this been a weird week? Like, there's been a lot of things happening this week that I don't remember happening lots of times. I actually view that. I mean, I may or may not write a follow-up to the pocket watch conspiracy. Oh, this. do it, do it, do it. Uh, all right, I'm going to do it, but I just want to yes. take as many different directions I could take it. <laughs> And one thing I do like to think, I do entertain this every now and then, I like to think that maybe they were 100% correct. Something did happen that has changed history. Maybe it's time travel, maybe it's interdimensional, but I like to think that the whole history in the Pocahontas conspiracy is history. But something has changed it just a little bit. It's the world that we know. And it's the reason why the characters are so fleshed out. From my opinion, I'm writing a nonfiction of what really happened, and it's all because <laughs> something changed it. Yeah, it's a secret history. But there is something else I want to mention when it comes to pop culture history for this week in Lincoln. And I think about this every now and then, and it just makes me laugh so much. There's an episode of Futurama where um, we see uh, Zach Brannigan and Kiff on something that's like a, an, an akin to the holodeck from Star Trek. And it goes berserk, and we see all these different villains from history. We see Professor Moriarty, we see Jack the Ripper, Attila the Hun, and the one that really freaks out everyone is Evil Lincoln. <laughs> and we just see a villain who is simply introduced as Evil Lincoln. And he's just Evil Lincoln with an axe, and he just laughs menacingly and tries to kill everyone. Wow. It's that straightforward. Are... He, he yeah. is Evil Lincoln. Those are great. The man references. needs no introduction. And great examples for this week in Lincoln, and we thank you for that. We'll share it with our listeners. Jacobo della Hercia, sorry, Jacopo and Giacomo. <laughs> you, 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 you can just call me you. You. Hey, you. Hey, you, the brilliant Abraham Lincoln writer. Thank you so much for your time. Um, did you want well, to share you so your much. website and your Twitter handle with everybody? Yes, please. It's uh, Uh If you want, you can just go on Twitter, go to Jacopo underscore Del underscore Q, or just um, type in Pocket Watch Conspiracy, Abraham Lincoln, anything like that, you'll be able to find me. What other new writings do you have out there for viewers to take a look at? Ah, actually, I just had a book that came out about, uh, I think, two months ago. It's called Game of Thrones versus History. 
the collection of scholarly essays on Game of Thrones, and I wrote a contribution to there on the Machiavellian political psychology and politics evident in the show. So please check wow. that out. And and also, of course, uh, I did write a follow-up to the Great Abraham. Uh, sorry, just back tongue. The Great Abraham Lincoln Pocket Watch Conspiracy called License to Quill. It's the same approach, only regarding William Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, and Guy Fawkes. I really view that as a sibling of the book that we've been talking about this whole podcast. They share DNA. If you liked one, you will love the other. Please check that out as well. License to Quill. And I will give it the endorsement as well. I, I haven't finished it yet. I have started it. It's great. Uh, Lincoln, by the way, Abraham Lincoln, huge Shakespeare fan. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he'd be interested. And, sure. jo- and also John Wilkes Booth, huge uh, Shakespeare fan as well. We, we don't like to say his name out loud. I'm just messing <laughs> I'm with sorry you. About <laughs> so, um, yeah, he was also a, yeah Edwin Booth who saved Robert Todd Lincoln's mm-hmm. life. Very much. That's right, correct. So, mm-hmm. anyway, thank you so much for your time. Um, I was so into this conversation. I hope maybe we can do it again. Maybe talk about the Shakespeare book. Maybe talk about anything else, or just talk about Lincoln. It was it was a great time. Ah, privilege and pleasure. I hope to come back. Awesome, great. Yes. So, um, to the listeners out there, thank you. We'll be in Springfield next week to bring you another episode. So keep walking through the world with Malice Tor None and Charity for All, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> God bless America. That's right. All right. Hey, thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Well, I'll reach out to you. Hopefully we can do it again. That was I really, really enjoyed that. Yeah, definitely. And by the way, um, I think I mentioned this on uh, Twitter uh, did you end up reaching out to... Oh, no, no, no. I mentioned this to her on Twitter. Did you end up reaching out to Civil War fangirl? I did. I actually, she was a Sherman fan I met, but she's awesome. Uh, excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I learned about her from uh, your podcast when we first found each other. And I spoke to her, and she sounded like she'd be very interested. So, I mean, if, uh, I mean you said that you want to be able to sort of cultivate the Lincoln community online. Uh, I really like what she does, and uh, I hope you have her on the show sometime. I think she'd be a wonderful guest. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, thank Excellent. you too, so much again, and, and uh, you're doing great work. I, I love everything you're putting out there. Um, like I said, read that book in two days. Two days. Well, <laughs> well thank you so much. I hope you like License to Quill even more. Yeah. All right, outstanding. Looking thanks. forward to it. Thanks again. We'll be in touch. I likewise. Have a good night. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Bye.